I'm excited about our next sponsor, 10,000. If you don't know what 10,000 is, it's a men's performance activewear brand built for serious training for serious dudes. Now, 10,000 sent me their tactical series, the tactical pants, the tactical overzip, and the tactical shorts. And the timing couldn't have been better as we were hit by this national freeze. Now, it got to 15 degrees in Texas. Trust me, I'm not complaining. A lot of people in the Northeast had it uh, worse. But I was wearing the tactical pants and the tactical overzip, which let me tell you, the tactical overzip, this thing is comfortable. I was working on the house, freeze-proofing it, the water heater in 15 degrees. I was comfortable. And then when it was time for my daily workout, I'd switch over to my garage gym, which was a breezy 40 degrees, throw the shorts on, get it on, sweating everywhere. And it's amazing how this material uh, wicks the sweat away so quickly. I was impressed. Now, I think 10,000 has challenged me to be the first person ever to wear 10,000 in Antarctica. I will take them up on that challenge. They will owe me a case of beer. 10,000, if you're listening, I will send you my address. Just make sure it's good shit. Now, guys, no bullshit. 10,000 works with top strength and endurance athletes to co-design, test, and develop their gear so you know it's heavily vetted before it even shows up at your door. Kid up now and get 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter the code WARRIOR. That's T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D dot C-C and enter the code WARRIOR, W-A-R-R-I-O-R, uh, and get 15% off your, uh, your purchase. They offer free shipping, free returns, and a lifetime guarantee. Now get off your ass, get the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts that you've ever worn from 10,000. And I guarantee you, you will not regret this tactical series. And if I'm wrong, reach out to me on social media, but I guarantee nobody will. All right, guys, get out there. Again, 10,000.cc. And welcome back to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. We are joined by Rich Davini. Uh, guys, if uh, we seem chummy, it's because I've known Rich since, I think, 2009. Yeah. Yeah, 2009. Two, 2009. So Rich is also a, uh, a Navy SEAL, much more experienced than I I, I had. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 20-plus years, 13 total deployments, 11 were to Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, just about. So you had the heydays. The heydays. The heydays, yeah. as I refer to them. Um, not that I'm chopped liver, uh, but no. And uh, and I know people can get you know when you hear the word heyday, people are like, well, what the hell does that mean? But yeah, it was we were doing what we were trained to do, which is what anybody always wants to do when they join. It, it's funny. It's either heyday of we were doing what we were supposed to do, or for some people, that like that made me in hell. Yeah, I was there. Oh yeah. Hell. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Because I think even I think even those of us who haven't had an overall positive experience. There's nothing positive about war. It just, I would say war sucks for everybody. So, uh, so you're always going to have those downtimes because you're at war. Right. And I, yeah, I know that's just the way it is. Um, I always joke, we're kind of, those of us who've actually experienced it are actually pacifists at this point and not pacifists in the sense that we, we don't believe that there are bad people out there and we don't believe that we shouldn't go to war at some points. But I think most of us understand that the decision to do something like that has to be taken into into real consideration because of the lives that are going to be you know risked it, it, you know that statement is is there, there's hypocrisy in that statement <laughs> and let me let me explain yeah, that yeah, because i had no problem and i know you had no problem and in, in the the boys we served with in in first off we were both officers guys let's, we had a very very table. very specific role we weren't <laughs> kicking down doors 
uh, if unless we needed to. Right. But we had a very specific role for the place that we served, and it was to make sure that the guys had every asset um, at their disposal. It was command and control. It was making sure that timelines are met. Again, assets are in place. But I had no problem going forward, mm-hmm. and I actually wanted to go forward. But now that I'm older and I've had time to reflect, it really scares me. And, and given the current state of affairs, I mean, I would be, I would get violent again. And I want to be careful in my statements. If I had to watch my son go to war, yeah, I would be pissed beyond means. And I would, I, people yeah. internally within the United States would pay yeah. for, 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 for that in my eyes. But I, you know, I think there would be a great reset. And war would not be as frequent if we put a cap on if, if there was a universal agreement amongst all nations that only thirty five plus year olds go to war. <laughs> then everyone would be like, "Well, well yeah, okay, well, okay, let's, let's come maybe, to the let's table. Let's do a debate, maybe, or yeah, yeah or let's a game, all... of, yeah, game of chess or something like that." Yeah, no, you're right. I think, um, I mean, you know, it's all it's all contextual. We we were obviously at a time it was post nine eleven. We were all everybody was was uh fired up i mean we we even look at the administration back then i've often thought there's been there was always a lot of criticism in terms of what the administration did but well certainly not maybe not for afghanistan but certainly for iraq and i'm someone who spent more time in iraq than afghanistan so i i i can honestly say i echoed some of my confusion as to why we were there Uh, but people don't understand the burden of leadership and um and uh, George Bush at the time came into the administration as a wanting to be a, a an economic yeah. president, a domestic president. Yes. Really, that's what it was, it was his goal. And and suddenly, you know, you know, the, one of the greatest terror attacks in history happens on his watch. And and only someone who's had that burden of leadership can understand the uh, the concern, the stress, the fear that that not ever happened again. Uh, and so and so decisions. Are made in that context, and sometimes, oftentimes, it's it's they're looked at uh, quite differently in, in hindsight, you know. But hindsight, you always have a lot more optic, a lot more information. So you do you do the best you can do, right? And that's, that's why they yeah. call it hindsight. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's always because you have all the information at that <laughs> yeah. time. Uh, yeah. So I had the privilege of let's see, it would have been two thousand sixteen had the pleasure of sitting next to him at a Texas Rangers mm-hmm. game. Yeah. And uh, I also met him in the Oval Office for Michael Monsoor's yep. Medal of Honor. And yep. I'll tell you what, he made Miss Monsoor feel like the only woman on earth yeah. on that day. Oh, yeah. And I've never, and then there's Dick Cheney who was cold as ice in the freaking corner. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. mm. I had a similar experience. You know, I don't know if you knew this, but we, his last day in office or one of his last days in office, he flew out here. He did a, he flew out here to, to help commission the George, H.W. Bush uh, carrier, and after that came over to the SEAL teams. I was SEAL Team Ten XO <laughs> at the time, XO Ops. So I can't remember, uh, but he decided to make a trip, so he came to visit SEAL Team Ten, and uh, we hosted him. And uh, it was him, Dick Cheney, and Condoleezza Rice, and so all of them came in. And I tell you, uh, yeah, Dick Cheney was cold as ice, definitely. Um, not, not didn't say much. Condoleezza Rice was as brilliant as everybody. She's thinks awesome. She is. She's I mean, awesome. Just wonderful. Um, and he really, I mean, he took time with everybody. He really did. He was, he was gracious. Uh, he was, he was grateful. Uh, there was zero arrogance, zero, uh, almost zero presidentialness. He just felt like one of the guys. Um, but I have to say, I'm going to, I'm just going to fast forward to when I got to meet President Obama at really much more dire 
circumstances when we were actually going to uh, to to uh, accept the the bodies from extortion there at Dover. Um, and he showed up, and um, he showed up at 8 a.m. that morning. He spent personal time with every single family member. And I think we might have talked about this in one of our other podcast discussions, but every single family member took time. Then we went out and we received, you know, the ceremony where they, they walked the, the caskets in from the C-17. This was a big hangar. The C-17 was pulled up. Uh, they, they, the president and all the, all the, all the joint chiefs were there, uh, all the, all the army, Navy, air force joint chiefs. So a lot of dignitaries, uh, all the military and they all stood in line at attention. It was a, it was an August day in Baltimore, right? So sweltering. Uh, and that guy stood at attention straighter than anyone out there. And, uh, they brought every, they brought all every coffin in. There wasn't enough. The C-17 wasn't big enough for all of the coffins. So they had to stop in the middle, cha- pull up a new C-17 and continue doing that. Uh, and he had, uh, and so he, and he was there all day. And, and the, the final story on that is the, the, um, the spouse I was rep- representing uh, had uh, he had they had he the well Matt had uh, what three or four children I think but his eldest hadn't been able to get there so he so but but we had we had been told he was on his way mm-hmm. he still wasn't there after we did the ceremony everything was over I got word that he was about twenty minutes out um, President Obama said I'm staying went back into his trailer took some calls waited till. Uh, Matt's son came, had special time with his son, and then left. So this is the president of the United States taking his entire day to be with people, to cry with them, to you know. And so, so I saw the same the same level of humility and and empathy and care in President Obama as I did in President Bush. And I thought that if anything, if if you want to see anything in a, in a commander in chief who's sending you know sensibly sending you to war, that that then makes you feel really good. So we those were two great back to back presidents. They were. Yes. They were. Different domestic policies, yes, yeah. different international uh, views, but great, great presidents. And and I can only imagine. I know with President Bush, you could see the 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 loss of life weighs on him, mm-hmm. and he's been relatively out of the uh, the limelight. Yeah. Um, and and that speaks to his character, and as well as uh, President Obama. Um, and President Obama, as we know and have said it before, I think I said it on the Rogan podcast was was very aggressive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On terror. He was actually our most uh, aggressive yes. president when it came to yes. us, when it came to special yep. operations. Yeah. Uh, our most aggressive. Uh, you know, again, this we can get into the the, t- the typical nature of how how conservatives and, and liberals you know kind of tend to look at foreign policy, but but the <laughs> the funny thing is that the spec ops have, it's always they've always been known as the de- the darlings of the Democrats special operations because they're they're low yield, low intensity, they're uh, they're quick, they're fast. So um, so yeah, it, he was very aggressive with us. You know, for and this is happening to President Biden right now is every like every single word comes out of his mouth. They're you know. The, the conservative side is just ripping yes. them apart. Yeah, yeah. Well, you look at President Bush, who who had a, let's say, tendency to to stumble on his words, not uh, out of a lack of of intelligence or, or articulation whatsoever, but they would oh. just jump all over. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's funny how it it just it's whatever way it swings at whatever, the time. Whatever, and, whoever your horse is in the in the in the in the office right there, you're gonna you're gonna either back or 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 beat. I guess is the. There's a point. <clears throat> and this comes down to just, in my opinion, maturity. Whoever wins the election, here's what you should say that night. Please do a freaking good job. Yes. Please do a yeah. great job, regardless of which way you swing. Yes. Left or right. 
do a good job. Well, listen, I, I think you agree, and I think most of our... You know, it's funny. I just read a statistic, right? I think I heard a statistic, that the, the far right, the percentage of far right, you know, is about 7%. Uh, the percentage of far left is about 7%, right? Which means that's only about tops 15%. The rest of us are all in the middle, <laughs> you know, and, and we could... Very, say, varying degrees, yeah, we could, yes. we could In varying degrees. We could say I'm a little bit more right than I am left, but the majority of us look at policy and look at the benefit of the yin and yang of this nation. And so, uh, and I'm someone who certainly can, uh, can look at and, and in, in many cases uh, hope and sometimes vote for uh, different parties so we get a little bit of a different flavor coming in there. Um, and I think that's the, that's the beauty of the nation. That's what the founding fathers really wanted. I mean, the, the democracy was always going to be hard. Uh, and it was always about, uh, about understanding how to give people the opportunity that they need, you know, uh, which is a problem. I mean, some, I was just another thing I, I was realizing, you know, the Founding Fathers years ago, uh, we have to remember that, that the, it, it is written that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness, not the right to happiness. And I think a lot of people... It, it, this is where you break down the lane of opportunity. <laughs> yes, yes, opportunity, if you're willing to pay the price. That's right. Yeah, the pursuit. So, so people don't deserve, they're not, they're, they don't, we don't have a right to happiness here in this nation. We have the right to pursue happiness. And that means that, that, and and I think that's been forgotten. I think this idea of entitlement and say, uh, we deserve certain things because we're, we're Americans. Um, you know, I just think we, we have such an opportunity here, every single person. There are admittedly people who start, I always kind of say some, you know, the top of Everest, some people are, some people start right at the, you know, 10 feet from the, from the, from the tip. And some people start and they're not even in, in Nepal. Right. I mean, so, so our starting points are always different and, uh, but we, we do have, it's a land of opportunity and it always will be. You know, it's a, it's amazing when I'm all about perspective and, and I think we've been comfortable for so long that we lack, we don't lack perspective. We lack a healthy perspective yes. in, in my eyes. Yes. So everyone is entitled. Everyone has different experience. Everyone is entitled to their, their perspectives, but we've endured comfort for so long that it has morphed into a degree of entitlement. Yes. Well, this is the advantage of something that you and I have been there. I was, I was having uh, breakfast with a good being in a third world uh, country for so yeah, long. A good yeah. friend of ours who, you know, I will, I will, he'll remain nameless, but he was, he was one of the biggest, one of the hardest, most badass operators that we've ever known. Um, just a, just a solid dude through and through. And he and I were having breakfast the other day. And, and of course he's been retired for a while. And he was saying, he's like, listen, I, I and he, he would describe himself as right leaning. He's not an extremist, but right leaning. But he said, I, I, um, I'm so grateful to have gone the places I've gone because I've gotten to see how great this country is because I've seen what it's like other places. We don't have, we, ha we, they, people don't have what we have here. And so, uh, and I think that the, what we're seeing a lot in America is people who don't have that perspective. They, they've, they've only seen, they've only known here, and they don't realize that hey, there's a reason why so many people from other parts of the world want to come here. <laughs> and, it's, and there's also a reason why when they do, they kick ass, because we have the, we have the, we have the ability to do it. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful place. I am a true, true patriot um, uh, and, and proud to be American, uh, oh. I'm not, but I'm not blind. I'm, I'm not a blind patriot. <laughs> so. so you've met Naira, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Naira's for, for the, for the listeners, uh, one of our, our, I call them uh media team yes. uh, with a yeah. number, but uh, it's, it's my running joke. They, they've, they've, they've owned it, but she's from Brazil, uh, born in Spain, then, then moved to Brazil. So she got dual citizenship and she said, she's like, Americans whine so much. 
And I had to, I'm like, yeah, I don't know where to go with that. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're absolutely right. I I just don't know how to respond to that. Um, But she has a different perspective. In Brazil, poverty is at a a different level. But I'm not kidding you. So I was late. You were here on time. Uh, I'll I'll do push-ups afterwards. But so I had to run home because I've been on the road all day and and dealing with things and and faxing things. But I I smelt because I worked out this morning. I'm like, I got a shower before I come see you. And there was no hot water in the apartment I'm staying. Mm Mm-hmm. And I start cursing. I'm like, this is bullshit. And, and then all of a sudden, I remember back to, to Everest, watching the kids along the trails. You're, you're, you're uh, uh, hiking through the, uh, the Everest uh, National uh, Forest, and they're bathing in like 40 to 5 degree water. Yeah. And like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I've gotten so comfortable that a, yeah. a cold shower, I'm, yeah. It's why, it's why, hey, a daily practice, everybody should be at multiple times a day. We should ask ourselves, what am I grateful for? We should put our lives in perspective because we can complain. I, I got on the phone with a buddy the other day, and he was like, uh, he, you know, there was some some shuffling or whatever when I was when we were starting up our conversation. I was like, what's going on? I was like, ah, this this damn AirPod, it's not it's not connecting. It's just so so frustrating. I was like, yeah, the struggle's real, man. The struggle's real. And we both started dying laughing because we realized these are just insanely uh, <laughs> asinine quote problems, right? We're lucky to have them, you know. And so so what am I grateful for? And uh, honestly, you know well-being in any form is what we should be grateful for. The practice of gratitude. Yeah. And, and I need to do more of it. I, you know, I haven't tried it in the morning. I've heard morning affirmations yeah. and morning gratitude is, is extremely powerful. I do say something when I get up. Well, when I do my little feet rotations because of the shrap metal in there, but, uh, today's going to be tougher mm-hmm. and that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Uh, and, and I go that, that goes to the no easy day for, sure. for the SEAL teams is that the only easy day was yesterday. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, the simplicity when everything is in abundance, that, that entitlement sets in. Yeah. But I do remember back to deployments when you had your, well, hell, sometimes our our rooms were not, you know, what is this? Probably eight by eight. Yeah. Something like that. Sometimes our rooms were smaller than this. The walls were, were that plywood, uh, walls. You had a twin mattress, which when's the last time you've or slept a in a, yeah. or a cot, but yeah. when's the last time you've slept on a twin bed? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. And you had your whoopee, you had yeah. your one pillow and you just loved it. Yeah. And it, that was, like, and you, you actually visualize, you're like, when you're out on those long ops, you're like, well, I can't wait to get back to my cot. Right. It was yeah. your little, your little world. Right. It's all perspective. Um, but again, that's why, that's why when we're in abundance, it's, it's one of the most important thing, reasons why we should always seek out challenge i believe and 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 struggle uh, and it doesn't and it shouldn't just be physical physical is only one aspect um it should be other types of challenge um my you know helping other people going out and doing things for people that's those are challenges where you're actually helping you know and and doing good and it's going to fulfill you in ways that you know you otherwise couldn't imagine so yeah so but these are all pursuits and i think we're all we're all on this journey and um i think you know even i forget to be grateful once in a while um uh, I tend to, it's, you know, I, I get to work from home. So I see my kids every day, I see my wife every day. So every day I wake up and I can see them and I can walk them out, you know, while they're going to school. I just, you know, that's my, that, that's my gratitude practice, you know, but, uh, uh but we have to find it. Well, you know? the, you, 20 years yeah, twenty years before ago. that was not, that's right. was yeah. not like that. That's um, we, we were gone. What, what was the average? Something like three hundred and twenty days out of the year, something or something. Like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. we we didn't have that luxury. No, you so, had, yeah, that's the sacrifice right there. It's not you know it's it's you know should we should you be able to make it home, which some of us didn't, 
right? The big the sacrifice on both ends is you miss your family, your miss your family misses you. So, uh, and even today's military, there's nothing going on right now, so our military is not really doing much. But they're still leaving their homes, they're leaving their loved ones to go yeah. out and and patrol and be out there, and that's a that is a sacrifice. I ran into some boys today that are active, yeah, and they were at a I fly tunnel. Oh, good, and they're yeah. just like. Heads down flying, sit flying. Yeah. And I'm like, God, you guys are so much better than our generation. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. skydiving training's better. They're probably better shooters because yeah. they're shooting more yeah. uh, consistently. Yeah. It, even though they lack the combat experience, they'll right. learn that real, real freaking quick. Um, I did, you know, as you say, the pursuit of challenge, uh, of challenge, both mental and physically, to to promote growth. Um, you know, someone asked me recently. They're like, when are you going to stop chasing things? Mm. And they didn't say it as a compliment. Right, and and I step back and I'm like, I, I know where you're going with this, but I'm going to give you a response that you're not going to like. I'm never going to stop chasing anything. Right, and and right. when my wife married me, she sort of knew this about me. Yeah, like you should always accomplish something. Then what's the next horizon? Yeah, uh, I yeah. you said something on one of our previous podcasts from a mentor of yours. He said, celebrate. Wait, wait, wait. Mourn your losses as quickly as you mourn your your your, your successes. This was the two. This is our our, our two minute rule. Two minute rule from uh, from our CEO, right? You, uh, both of our CEOs. So this uh, is a former mentor. Yeah, former mentor. But yeah, uh, phenomenal. One of our CEOs there at, at our command we were at, and uh, and he used to say it was the two minute rule that his grandfather taught him, um, and that was you know uh, when something bad happens, take two minutes and you know mourn it, kick the dirt, swear, do whatever you want, feel sorry for yourself, and after two minutes, after 120 seconds get back to work. And then when something good happens, same thing, pat yourself on the back, rest on your laurels, you know, feel good, you know, do whatever you need to do. But after two minutes, get back to your thing. And, and I would say that the two minute rule, and I talk about the two minute rule a lot in terms of the practice of resilience. Um, but what we have to understand is, is it is a practice and it is something you can do with little tragedies. Um, because there are things in life that happen that are going to take a lot more than two minutes to to recover from, and that there are great things that happen that we want to spend a lot more two minute than two minutes celebrating. But it, it puts you into this mindset of getting back to baseline, getting back to work, because because to to mourn, to to kick the dirt, to stay low, it only means your baseline is going to slowly decrease. Because once you get hit again, you haven't gotten back to baseline, so mm-hmm. you're going to go lower than you mm-hmm. were. And if you go too high, that's when complacency complacency sets in, and you start um, you start making mistakes. And complacency is. Yeah, an even worse enemy than um, than uh, than I guess sorrow because complacency is arrogance, and then you're going to miss stuff. So so yeah, it was a it's it was a great practice, and it's a great way to practice resilience. And I would I would recommend anybody, but use it for those little tragedies, you know, the traffic jam, the spat with a coworker, whatever that is that you can get over in two minutes, so that you when the big stuff hits, you you at least have some of that muscle built. It's a good good thing to do. I, I think this is a a good. Point. So for the listeners, Rich Divini has become known as the attributes guy, which is not the worst, uh, you know, sort of title. No, uh, you could no, be no. the soft pillow guy or whatever. Right, uh, right, yeah. but, you know, you're the attributes guy. So um, born in Indiana. Is that correct? Uh, Connecticut. Actually. Connecticut. Yeah, went to school in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, Purdue. Purdue. Yeah. And then you wanted to be a pilot, learned about Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. There was an attraction, uh, a seduction there. You're like, ooh, do I have what it takes to do that? Yeah. Ended up becoming a SEAL officer, um, served with a conventional team, served a JSOC, but eventually you were tasked with revamping the selection process for 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 a organization for a, our, our specialized command. Yeah, in, in yeah. during that time, you developed. Well, I mean, 
if somebody had tasked me with that, I would have been like, I don't. Well, okay, I've got to, so, I've got to start doing research. I mean, how? Well, do you- so what, so what, what was going on, and you may remember this, uh, was that we had for years um, not been able to. So at that particular command, just to give the audience a, a background, we would take applicants from all the rest of the SEAL teams, and these applicants would, uh, they'd have to have experience. So it was at least five years of SEAL. Had to have glowing recommendations. Have to have glowing. Fit, fit, fitness reports, kind of the top, top candidates, the top applicants would have to, where we, you could only be the top applicant if you wanted to apply. And they'd apply and they'd come to our selection, which was a nine month selection process, 50% attrition rate, which means 50% of these top dudes were not making it. And for, for years, the, uh, the, the, the reasons why guys weren't making it that we were giving were things like, well, the guy couldn't do CQC or they couldn't shoot very well or couldn't couldn't skydive, whatever it was, right? And this didn't make sense because these are skill. These are these guys are experienced dudes. They they cleared more houses than than most people, right? Um, so it was disingenuous for the person for the candidate. It felt it felt disingenuous for us as the cadre, um, and the leadership began to say, "Hey, what the hell is going on down there? Why 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 can't you? Why did that person not make it?" And give me an explanation better than he couldn't cut it, right? So it's safe to say we couldn't articulate. We couldn't why. articulate. I was tasked with articulating. My RCO said, "Rich, I need you to atta- I need you to try to articulate what we have going on." And this is when I really started to dive into performance. I really said, "Okay, what are we when we see performance? What are we looking at?" And that's when I began to see, "Hey, this is this is not just the visible skills. We're we're looking for more than these visible skills. There's these hidden qualities, these hidden traits that we're looking for that define whether or not someone has." what it takes to do the job. And I was, higher probability. Higher yeah. probability. I, I, I was reminded of a story. This, this, this story I heard, it happened before I went to SEAL training, or went to BUDS. And I went back in 96. And so this happened before I did, but uh, before I went. But back then, one of the first things you had to do when you showed up to BUDS was, and for just for the audience, I'm sure they know because they've been listening to you for a while, but basic underwater demolitions, mm-hmm. SEAL training, six months long, San Diego, California. First thing you had to do back then was you had to swim 50 meters. So jump in a pool, swim 25 meters to one end, 25 meters to the other end. All right. The story goes that this kid shows up. It's his turn to jump in the pool. He jumps in the pool. He sinks right to the bottom. He starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one end and then walks across the bottom of the pool to the other end. Comes up. He's gasping for air, nearly drowning. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid, who's still getting his breath, looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor. I don't know how to swim. And the instructor pauses for a second and looks at the kid and says, that's okay. We can teach you how to swim. Right. So why did the instructor say that? The instructor said that because he knew that if this kid had the attributes, the qualities, the balls, whatever you want to call it, to show up to Navy SEAL training without knowing how to swim, he had everything inside of them and him that we needed for him to be a Navy SEAL. Teaching him to swim, the skill was the easy part. So I began to separate this idea between skills and attributes. And we began to say, hey, we're in fact looking for attributes. What attributes we're looking for, that was then the, the, the journey, right? And I put together committees around the command. I said, okay, what are we looking for? What makes our best operators? What makes our best operators? And and I got lists back from... De- from did, you, did you ever ask what makes our worst operators? Did you, you know, guys I, ever reverse engineer? Because, yeah. because I was so focused on, <laughs> on one side of it, right? Uh, that would have been a good question. It'd be because a great you, question. You basically, yeah. the opposite of that is... That's right, yeah. yeah. But, you know, but even just the best operators, we got, I mean, we got, I remember getting about 100, 120 things back. And, and of course, then I started calling them, calling them out. I had to separate skills from attributes because sometimes a lot of times we conflate the two okay and this 90 percent of people if not more would not be able to define the difference the, yeah. yes yeah so let me define the difference for everybody the difference is skills are not inherent to our nature we're not none of us are born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball or shoot a gun we're trained to do those things we 
we're taught to do those things. Skills direct our behavior in known specific environments. So here's how and when to throw a ball. Here's how and when to ride a bike or, or shoot a gun. Because they're visible, they're, they're, you, can, you can see them. They're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can put scores around them. You can put stats around them. You can see how well anybody does any of those. You can put them on resumes, right? What skills don't tell us, however, is how we're going to perform in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. So this is when we lean on our attributes. Attributes are innate, okay? All of us are born with levels of patience, situation awareness, adaptability, resilience, okay? Now, we can certainly develop those things over time and experience, but there's an, you can see levels of this stuff in very small children, which means there's a nature-nurture element to attributes. Attributes don't direct our behavior. They inform our behavior. So in other words... They tell us how we're going to show up. My, my son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike, and he was falling off a dozen times doing so, right? And then because they're hidden in the background, they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. You, they're hard to see. They're the, they're, they're the most visible during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty, which is when they come to the fore, right? But when it comes to performance, if we're making the mistake of judging performance only on these visible skills... We are missing a huge part of the performance picture. And oftentimes, we're looking only at the things that people need when things are going great. But we know, and the teams we served on, high-performing teams are the teams that perform not only when things are going great, but also when things are going sideways, when things are not going great. Those are teams that are built on attributes. And so we began to collect and say, okay, what are the attributes that are required to be part of this command? I took, to, And by the way, just so quick, for, again, for the audience, so... If you want to separate, if you want to, if you want to decide whether or not it's a skill or an attribute, all you have to do is ask yourself one question. Can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute. So the, the example for that would be someone tells you, tells you and I, Mike, hey, I want to learn how to shoot a pistol. Oh, well, yeah, done. We can take someone out to the range and teach them how to do that in two hours. That's <clears> a skill. Someone says, or Mike, you say to me, hey, Rich, I want to learn how to be more patient. Okay, I can't teach you how to be more patient, right? That's an attribute. So an attribute has to be self-developed. And it's internal. And it's harder to do. Um, and so so that's how you tell. And so what we did is I took that 120 things, called away the the skills, you know, took the synonyms and got them together, came up with 36 attributes that we were looking for. Um, and then we began to, and we didn't have to change training at all. Our training was perfect, right, the way it was. Now we just looked at the environment differently. Okay, when we saw a guy entering a room not able to clear the corner or keep up with the information or what, do whatever, we'd say, hey, that's not necessarily because they're a bad shot. It's because they don't necessarily have enough situation awareness. They don't have enough adaptability, don't have enough of this, or don't have enough of that. Enough of that. And so, so it changed the game in the way we were able to select. And then when I got out of the Navy, I recognized that organizations and teams were making the same mistakes, right? They were putting together dream teams based on resumes that were kick-ass and Everybody, this guy or gal had the best grades, best skill or whatever. And then they were putting these people together and the teams were toxic. And I said, well, you're not. Lack the attribute for teamwork. They lack the, yeah. So, yeah. They, well, they, 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 they put a dream team together based on skills. Best mm-hmm. this, best mm-hmm. that, best that. Mm-hmm. That's not going to, that's not going to make the engine run, to, run properly. The, 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 the things that cause interhuman interaction, especially during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty are attributes, not skills. So eventually, and we see the same thing. Running a SEAL team or trying to build a SEAL team is no different than running or trying to build a team in investment banking or manufacturing or marketing or whatever it may be. Um, So you eventually wrote the book, The Attributes, the 20, I'm sorry, 25. Yeah, 25 hidden drivers drivers of of optimal performance, yeah. You use a word that is often conflated as well between optimal and peak. Yes. And I love how you explain this because 
when you explained it, because we, we, we used to say, Hey, you know, we're all about peak performance when yeah. we were completely wrong. Right. We, it was, it's not, not that it's not relevant to what we did, but because of the nature of our work, you had to be ready to go at any time. Yeah. And that could be across a five year career. Yeah. So peak performance is not going to, is not going to be as optimal. Well, That's, well, peak is just a point, right? Peak is an apex. That's like, an, all like an athlete playing on Saturday. And and peak is there only there's only one place you can go from an apex and that's down right. But you're right. The athlete, the football player, the professional football player spends his entire week planning and prepping and scheduling so that he may peak for three hours on Sunday. We don't get to do that, nor does nor do most human most beings, professions. Right? And so what optimal performance allows us to do is a, is a defined performance as like an umbrella. Optimal performance is I'm going to do the very best I can in the moment. Whatever the best looks like in that moment, right? So the best sometimes can look like peak, and it's flow states, and everything's clicking. It's awesome, but but our best might be in the, at that at, at one point. I'm just head down, nugging it out, going step by step because that's all I have right now, and it's gritty, and it's ugly, and it's hard, and it's dirty. And I will tell you, like you and I in SEAL training and surf torture, there was nothing peak about our performance. We were just doing the best we very could in the moment, and that best was just not quitting, right? That was our best in the moment. So. Optimal performance allows us two things. First of all, it allows us to pat ourselves on the back when we are just struggling and we're just going step by step and it's dirty and it's gritty. I mean, how many ops did we do, Mike, that you came back and we were like, holy crap, that was ugly, right? Uh, that pretty just, much that every, just, that every was single not, yeah, one. Every, and it was like, but we got the job done, right? So it's nothing peak about it, right? So it allows us to pat ourselves on the back, but really more importantly, allows us to do what I call property proper energy management, right? I don't need to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store, okay? I can be modulating my energy appropriate to what I need in the moment. And another myth I always bust when I do when I speak to groups and crowds is is the myth of Navy SEALs you see on TV and movies of a group of SEALs going, you know, before they go on a mission and they're huddling up like an athletic team and they're hoorahing and they're high five and they're rah rahing to the helicopter. It doesn't happen like that. In fact, I and I know you know this, most of the time we were in helicopters flying into combat and guys were napping. Okay, guys were asleep. And now you and I didn't get to sleep because we were on the radio because we were the officers and we had to listen to the pilots, right? But but they were... <laughs> Poor us. <laughs> Poor Jesus. us, right? But guys were sleeping. Why were they sleeping? Because they didn't know... We didn't know what was coming. We didn't know how long we were going to be out there. We didn't know what was required. We we're not going to waste an ounce of energy we didn't need. So so optimal performance allows us to run that that that, that bandwidth, right? And perform... Peak when we need to peak. Recover when we need to recover. Modulate when we need to modulate, but also when it when it's just tough and gritty and it's hard, we're just going that we're just taking the next step. And this is this translates in every aspect of life. I mean, you talk to cancer survivors, you talk about chemo, yeah. and they say, "Yes, I just when it was when it was time for chemo, I was just getting through hour by hour, and it was sucky and it's shitty and all that stuff." And they were performing optimally, and I think that's the key. So you broke these these attributes down into buckets. Yeah. First off, you're, you're not going to give away the book. There's no way you can give away the book in, too dense, in, I think. in, in 20 minutes. But <laughs> I'm going to tell yeah. people you got to go pick up the attributes. Funny enough, we reconnected. I think it was like three or four years that, yeah. that we hadn't talked. And I was writing the book, The Talent War. You were writing the book, yeah. The Attributes. And they were so similar, except you took a very, very deep look into the attributes yeah. And, yeah. and wrote it in a way that people can dissect every role yeah. within their company to, to determine what attributes are necessary. And we advocated for that, but we didn't go in depth. You ended up, I, I said, Hey, then let me interview you for the, uh, the book, but give me the buckets and just a quick overview yeah. of what attributes are in those buckets and why. Yeah. So, for, so I talk about the 25 attributes. There's more, uh, there are more attributes than 25. In fact, the work we do with organizations now, we have about a list of 40, 45 attributes, but the 25 
I wrote about was were the ones I felt were the 25 attributes for optimal performance. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, so the five categories are these so grit, mental acuity, drive, leadership, and team ability. Okay. Grit. A lot of people think of grit as its own attribute. It's not. Okay. Grit is a, first of all, grit can be described as the, you know, your, the ability to kind of push and power through those more acute challenges. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's how I think of grit. And it's a it's a combination of things blended and catalyzed and stewed together. In fact, Angela Duckworth wrote a great book called Grit, Grit. and she basically yep. said the same thing. It's not just one thing. So the four attributes required that 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 make up grit are courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience. Okay. Then we have mental acuity. Okay, the attributes that describe how our brain processes the world. Okay, um, these are really cool and unique, and we could we could spend a whole hour on this because this is if we want to talk about the seal mind. This is where it all starts, right? But how we process the world, situation awareness. What are we noticing about? How much do we notice about our environment? Our levels of vigilance, okay? Obviously, SEALs, we notice a lot more. I was just in New York City last week, and I'm, I walk around New York City, I notice everything. Okay? I notice dark alleys, notice people's hands, I notice cars, I notice everything. Sometimes that can, that can translate into hyper vigilance, vigilance which, which, can, which be, can be a source of PTSD yes. in some cases. Yes. So, too much or too little of any of these things is bad, right? So, you want to have a, a happy medium where you need. But situation awareness, compartmentalization, the ability to to chunk an environment into meaningful elements and focus on what needs to be focused on and block out everything else. Uh, the single most important element to make it through SEAL training, by the way, that is the single most important attribute that every why, single- Why is that? Because because SEAL training is so tough that the, 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 the individual who can't effectively compartmentalize will not make it through. That's the individual who starts Hell Week on Monday and thinks of Friday, right? Who can't say, hey, I'm just who, who sits in the surf zone and focuses on their pain and can't how long have I been here? Whereas you and I sat in the surf zone and we things like, oh, I'm just going to count to 10 or, oh, OK, well, my muscles feel better now. Right. Or I can't I remember thinking, well, I'm going to be free, I'm going to be doing push ups soon and I'll be super hot. So I'm just going to enjoy the cold while I'm at, I mean, that type of compartment. <laughs> right? Some people are really good at that. Some people aren't as good at that. OK, um, some people are too good at that. You know, and seals fall into this category as well. If we compartmentalize too much, that can also lead to compartmentalizing emotions, compartmentalizing things. There's, there's a dichotomy to all. There's of a these. dichotomy yeah. to all of it, right? So that's compartmentalization. Uh, task switching. How effectively are we able to ship, uh, switch our focus points between categories and contexts in our environment? So, so switch from the the email to the phone call to the conversation to this to that. This can be confused uh, with multitasking, but we all know multitasking is a myth, right? Bullshit. The, yeah, the, yeah. The, the conscious not, mind. Not can, even a computer. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, the conscious mind can only focus on one thing at a time. Now, neuroscientists will say that you can maintain a, a slight focus on another thing, um, but, but it's really just one thing at a time, which means you know, if you're listening to, your, to this podcast while driving your car, the reason why you're able to is because you're not thinking about driving your car, right? But if you if someone swerves in front of you right now and you have to take evasive maneuvers, you'll have to rewind the last 15 seconds of the podcast. I, I, and, and I'm going to replay this because Jordan, yeah, my wife, yeah, she's like men because like she can tell when I'm on the phone, yeah, with yeah, her, yeah. And, yeah. And she's like men. She's like women just multitask and men cannot. I'm like <laughs> actually that's not true. They don't yeah, multitask, no. but women have been found. And I'm not again. I'm not going to put any gender um, definitions on this, but. I've heard holistically, for the most part, women can task can ta- can task switch better than men. Um, and part I mean, of that, that, if you if you take, I've, I've I've talked to some evolutionary biologists about that. And if you take that all the way back to our roots, it's because the 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 men in the in the tribe were focused on hunting, right? And what do you have to do in hunting? You have to really focus in on something and get it and and do it. Whereas the women hunters and gatherers, they have to maintain an awareness and they have to switch. From you know picking the right berry to doing this to the to kids run to, the village. to run the yeah. village, so yeah. so task switching 
is evolutionary in a way. It's evolutionary way. Again, mm. we've we've gone to a point where it can be argued that there's no difference. But if 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 people if we hear people say that, I don't necessarily disagree. Yeah. Um, and then we have learnability, uh, the ability to upload and metabolize this stuff in your system, right? So the the people who are high on learnability are the people who you tell them how to do or show them how to do something once and they got it, right? You and I know people like this. I am not one of these people, right? When I was in in our uh, commands selection, right, I was the guy who had to stay after and review my material. I'd walk the I'd walk the uh, kill house just to visualize what I wanted. I mean, I had to, I made the same mistakes a couple times, right? So if you're a little bit lower, sometimes it takes you harder. It takes really. You harder yeah, I was I was first time every time on everything. That's nice. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> Anyway, you, no. you adjust, but you know, there's some guys, there's some folks who are like that. Again, you can't judge yourself on these. Yeah. Things. You would have seen those for those where things did not come as easy because of the iterations and the repetition that yeah. they had to undergo. Sometimes that they ended up one year, two years, five years down the line to yes. be actually the more skilled at 100%. And even those who tended for things to come easy, didn't always have that advantage because the, the beauty of the training that we we put guys through is actually we throw guys into uncertainty and uncertainty changes the game for everybody right because now you are it's no longer you are doing a rote skill anymore you are actually every time you're figuring out a new environment and you're thinking through every room you're thinking through every scenario and you're training your brain into in a system of thinking that is different than just i'm going in here i'm turning right and i'm shooting right and that's the beauty of what we do. That's why I thought, I mean, I'm so grateful that we went where we went because the level of CQC that we did, I thought was just un, unparalleled in our ability to, to see this stuff so viscerally and to, to, and to practice and train on it in such a high stakes level. I mean, I just, I'm so grateful. I really am. And I'm at grateful such that a I was rapid able, rate at to, such a to rapid such rate, a high, to such high a bar. degree to, yeah. uh, to, uh, in a, in an environment that's highly dangerous, right? You're shooting yeah. live fire around other people. So. And of course, as I'm saying that I'm referring to the boys, uh, well, yeah, but again, yeah, we, yeah. but even the boys will, I mean, we, as officers had to do it. I mean, if, if the officers, as an officer, you had to pass that course, right? Yeah. Certainly you and I mm. did not get to the levels of the guys, yeah. of the boys, the guys we led, right? They got 10,000 um, hours. But you know, it's funny. I was yeah. talking about, I was talking to uh, another couple of friends of mine, guys who I, I, I served with and fought with and enlisted guys. And I, I have lunch with them and coffee and, and we talk about this and the difference. And one of the things that as an officer, I did much better than they was a different level of task switching. I could manage the environment, right? I remember you, and you did this. I had a head, I had a headset on, I had the air assets. I had my troop chief. I had this, I had, I had four or five different networks coming into my system, all of which I had to organize, right? And I was good at it and I liked it. And, and I remember one of, I won't say his name, you know, this guy, but I remember we did a, here's a, here's a quick story on, on accountability. Um, I know we're, we're shooting the, we're, we're, we're jumping the gun. Accountability is one of the leadership attributes. Quick story on accountability. I was out there in Iraq with, with Hank from the book. It was our, mm -hmm. uh, and Hank mm -hmm. and I were out there. And if you get to pick up the book, you'll read about Hank, one of the most phenomenal operators ever. And Hank and I were, uh, we were, we, it was a very kinetic, very busy deployment. And we were at one point having lunch, I think, and we were talking about leadership and we looked at each other and we, we, we said, you know, if we, you know, we always say we we're, we're responsible for growing new leaders, right? We're responsible for that. Well, we, if we don't walk the talk, then we're, we're full of shit. We need to, we need to do something. So, so we decided we we're going to send the troop out on a mission without us. We we're going to say, Hey, we're going to sit in the jock and send the troop out on a mission. So we picked a couple of the troop. Uh, the, a couple of team leaders, the troop chief, uh, yeah, a couple the, of team the two that would ascend to your position. Yeah, so one post. team leader took the uh, GFC position, one team leader took the troop chief position. We sent them out. We picked a fairly what we thought was a benign, you know, kind of a, a easy target, right? 
course they go out there and you just start slaying it, right? It's like Al-Qaeda it everywhere. Benign. It wasn't benign yeah. at all. And so Harry and I are just like, or Hank and I were just like, we were like, ah, damn it, you know, we're missing the thing. But at one point this is going on. Of course, they're, they're, doing, they're doing great. But we look at each other and we're like, you know, and of course we were working for a, at the time, a uh, Delta commander, right? I was working directly for him. Um, and he was like looking at us like, okay, what, <laughs> what are you guys doing here? But, uh, but I remember looking at Hank and, and us looking at each other and saying, you know, if this goes sideways, we're done. We're done. Because we knew we had, this was, we were accountable no matter what. Of course they did great. They came back and the one team leader, I'll tell you his name after this, but he comes back, he takes his headset and he throws it at me when he gets in the truck. He's like, I'm never doing that shit again. That sucked. I don't know how you do that. Right. And we were just laughing about it. But it was very validating because that job was something I was really good at. And so when we talk about enlisted and officer in those environments, the best teams in that command or in any command weren't the teams that separated each other and, and, and made those distinctions other than joking around. The best teams were the teams that really honored and respected what everybody brought to the team. And I know every team I served with, they looked at me and said, hey, Rich brings something to this equation that we need and I can't do. And they're grateful for it. And I would look at my guys and be like, man, they do stuff that I yeah. can't do. Any, yeah. you know. But you know, it's funny. So we joke about that. But, but what makes a great team is the officers bringing exactly what the officer needs to bring and not stepping in the way of the enlisted guy. And the enlisted guy bringing whatever they need to bring and not stepping in the way. And just you're synergized. And, and rank goes out the window. You're there more on responsibility versus rank. It, to, to include the support roles that put us when you treated them with such respect yeah. for what yeah. they brought to the table, it was a different environment. Amazing. Well, yeah. I remember, and, and so, so the most important, I always say the most, the three most important words you can ever say as a leader to the people in your span of care are, I need you. All right. Because what you do in that point is you, you show them, you show them, first of all, you can't do what they do. You appreciate what they bring. They bring a unique value to the team organization. And you also immediately open up a space for them to contribute, right? Because as soon as I say, I need you, suddenly someone says, okay, well, I'm going to contribute because he needs me, right? And that's really important. And not many leaders do that. And, uh, and but, but I should say, not many people in charge do that. All leaders do that, right? But not many people in charge do that. So I think here's the fear of, of today's environment is yeah. just, if you tell somebody, I need you, they said, oh, really? I would like a pay raise. Uh, <laughs> not I, in the I military, that happens. Not, not in the military. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. hey, that is the one thing about the military is pay is never an issue. Never, yeah. Never brought up, other than the fact I thought the guys that did what they did should, on any other other level, be paid a lot more. I do. I, thought, I, think, tempo. I think I think the guys that you and I served with got paid a lot, right? I think they, I think the, I think there other guys probably there was other guys who probably needed. A little bit more love. I think. I think more military folks need. Yeah, to know, so. I, I, you'll but, never uh, hear me. Yeah, but most of the guys I know, most of the guys I served with the enlisted guys said, "Yeah, we we do pretty well." They were pretty pleased with what they with what they were getting. But uh, but holistically, um, there should be somewhat of a hierarchy of of pay for the amount of risk. I mean, look at those guys. Look at those folks on the flight deck. Not only risk, but the amount of mastery. And mastery, yeah. That um, yeah. so here's here's one tactic uh, I've u- utilized, and one both you and I have been a product of some great mentors. Yeah. And one of the things that people overlook is when they think of mentorship, they think of a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Here's my boss; he's mentoring me. Some of the greatest mentorship I've ever had, and and we were not peers. Yeah. 
uh, we were close, but you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you in the hierarchy, oh, you were higher than me. Is the peer peer mentorship? Yeah, is the 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 horizontal mentorship mm-hmm. uh, from when you're in a troop? Yeah, there's a hierarchy, but I consider those guys peers. Right at the end of the right. day, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm ultimately responsible for for good or bad calls. But um, great mentorship, and and I've taken all these these breadcrumbs from these different mentors, and I've created my own system, and that's what leadership is. Yeah. One, like, there is no original leadership principles. There's not. It's and all you know, passed down oral history at this point. You're right, and and we, you and I, have also said that leadership is not a position; it's a behavior. It's, a, <laughs> and so we don't. You can be. There's a difference between being in charge and being a leader, and you can. You get to you get to say, "Hey, I'm in charge." You get to self-designate, but you don't get to self-designate as as a leader. You and I were officers in the military, in the Navy. We were in charge of every mission we were on, whether or not we were a leader. Okay, and you and I were always in charge of something, whether or not we were a leader, depended on the people in our span of care and how they looked at us. So, calling yourself a leader is like calling yourself good-looking or funny. Okay. You don't get to choose. Other people decide whether or not you're good looking or funny, okay? Other people decide whether or not you are a leader. Other people decide whether or not they want to follow you. And they do so based on the way you behave. And you and I know, we've, we have we saw so many examples. You and I had some great mentors, but we also had what I call reverse mentors, which are the people who were so horrible that we looked at and we said, we will never be like that. And I remember there were times where I'd look at the person in a hierarchical position above me and say, I wouldn't follow that person anywhere. And I'd look over there to the, to the right and the person who was in no hierarchical position whatsoever, I said I would follow that person to hell and back. And it's because of the way they behaved. So leadership comes from behavior, and it's a designation that yeah. other people give you. I, I want to get to my original point. But one of the things, too, that, uh, you know, I posted something on – well, no, 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 no. I gave a speech, and I used the phrase, and I, t- I talk, to you, talk about you a lot in my speeches, and I say – Rich, Rich Devaney asked me a question, uh, and I remember you did this on a LinkedIn Live. You're like, hey, Mike, do you consider yourself a good leader? And I'm like, I'd like to think I was a good leader. He's like, you don't get to choose or make that decision. <laughs> I'm like, spot, didn't I? <laughs> I, I think on the secret chat, I'm like, hey, after this, fucking uh, find me. I'm going to punch you in the face. But no, you know, it's right. And so I, I said that, and somebody posted a picture of me and said, you don't get to choose if you're a good leader or not. Your people do. Yeah. And some former military guy hater the keyboard coward yeah. just went off he's like that's not true blah 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 blah. but when he circled back and if you read you're like no you just said that basically it's leadership is based off behavior right and trust in genuine trust right. but one of the things i do for uh my my i don't, don't want to call them youngins but you know young leaders uh that we did with naira and, and michelle and will is on day one is we tell them, hey, we need you to understand one thing. You are a leader within this organization. You have, you have different perspectives, different experiences, and yep. you may not be leading a team anytime soon. You've got to learn to become a good follower in order to become a good leader. What I mean by that, and I explain it. Yep. Um, but you know, if you treat a boy like a man, usually the behavior you start to curate and, yes. and see is is a, is a higher level of maturity. Tend to step up. Yeah. And this is one of the one of the things I see, I see in the the regular military is they they don't treat those eighteen year olds Marines and, and soldiers like 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 men. Right. And continue. Yeah, they're gonna fuck up. They're eighteen, dude. Yeah. But continue to reinforce and, and drive those points home. Yeah, that yeah. when they do get in trouble, you explain to them why they're gonna the, the military's gonna take a pound of flesh. What they should learn from it. What attributes and behaviors they need to demonstrate yeah, yeah. in order to show that they've truly learned from that experience and that they are better for it. Right. Um. So I want to get back into it. So you have the drive, drive attributes. Right. So yeah, attributes. So categories. So we had the uh, grit, mental acuity, now the drive. Drive can be described as the uh, the ability to pursue those longer term challenges and objectives. Okay. What makes up the driven person? Those are 
uh, self-efficacy, open-mindedness, discipline, uh, cunning, and narcissism. Yes, mm-hmm. narcissism. Right, that is a an attribute if used positively. And and let's hit narcissism because a lot of okay. people. Oh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not a narcissist. Yeah, right. Uh, we all are, and here's why. Um, because a narcissist. So it you know narcissistic personality disorder. It's a disorder. It's it's outlined in the DSM four, and in DSM four you'll find a couple pages on it, and there'll be nine sentences, nine criterion by which the physician looks at and says, okay, if the patient uh, fits, I think five or more of these the patient is considered disordered, okay? So I bought a copy of the DSM-4, of course, and so, or DSM-5, and I said, okay, I started to look at these sentences. And as I read these sentences, I certainly didn't have five or more, but I also wasn't innocent of everything I was reading. So I was like, okay, wait a second. Let me think about this for a second. Why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? And I really asked myself, and as you know, whenever you write a book, there's a lot of self-reflection. Yeah. And you want to do it honestly. And I did, I interrogated myself honestly. Of course, I was a patriot. Of course, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to be a pilot since I was six years old. Why, though, did I choose Navy SEALs? Ultimately, it's because I wanted to see if I could be a badass. I wanted to see if I could do something very few people could do. I started asking my team guy buddies, my SEAL buddies, the same question, and ultimately it said the same thing. Yes, I wanted to be a badass. So then I looked up the definition of narcissism, okay, the elemental, because you know me, I'm about semantics, I'm about the elemental definitions of stuff. Elemental definition of narcissism is the desire to stand out, be adored, and be recognized. That's what it is, okay? Every single human being on the planet at some point in their lives wants to stand out, be adored, and be recognized. And in fact, we're neurologically rewarded when it happens. The infant who's being adored by their parents gets bursts of dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Feels good, okay? Feels good when we're adored. Feels good when we're recognized. So ultimately, a little bit of narcissism is the impetus and can be the impetus to some of our most audacious goals, right? Why else would someone want to be the top salesperson, top athlete, top uh, teacher, top Navy SEAL, top author, whatever, top actor. It's because we want to be a little bit, be a little, be a little bit special, right? So the antidote to your narcissism getting too much is to surround yourself with trusted people who tell you the truth when you need to hear the truth, right? The classic malignant narcissist can be spotted immediately by looking at the people around them. They are always surrounded by- The yes-men. The yes-men. People who bend the knee, people who who put them on a pedestal. And by the way, those groups are often transient. In other words, someone can't bend the knee for too long. So eventually, one of those people will leave that group. As soon as that happens, that person becomes enemy number one to that narcissist. Happens every time, okay? That's how it works. If we look at the people around us and we say, hey, the people, I'm not the center of attention all the time. I'm not on a pedestal. My, the people around me tell me when I'm screwed up. They tell me when I'm getting out over my skis, right? You are in a good position to effectively metabolize those slight narcissistic audacious goals, which are all good. And that's, that's how we have to look at it. So it is a driver. That's uh, that right there, how you just laid that out. I think here's, here's one of the biggest, let me, let me put it to you this way. Yeah. One of the things we don't teach our kids are the elemental definitions of all these attributes. Yeah. There is no education for our lower elementary schools where they, they, they break down leadership, leadership development, right. performance, and behavior. Right. And that is, it is the biggest missed opportunity. Yeah. That sometimes... Well, and I would always I would say, Mike, because I've thought about it, we've had a lot of uh, schools reach out to us with you know, wanting curriculum. And man, we're so excited to talk to these folks. Um, too many hurdles. Well, well, it's well. First of all, there's too many. There's too many. I always say it's the Russian proverb, right? If you chase two rabbits, both will escape. And so there's you can't have too many rabbits you're chasing. And so, uh, so the the intent is to do this stuff. But one of the reasons why I, we need to take it slow is because you know we're we're working on some stuff for high school and college right now, mm-hmm. right? The reason is because 
when we're kids from the time of birth till about 22, really 25, but 22, you're almost there. You're, you're plastic. Your frontal lobe is still not fully formed. You are the most, your brain is the most plastic. You're absorbing everything. You're like a sponge. And so what I didn't want to do for kids was to have them begin to label themselves. In other words, I don't want to tell a kid, oh, you're a little bit low on adaptability, right? Ultimately, what we want to do for our kids is develop habits of introspection, right? So that they begin to say as young kids, ooh, let me think about this. Let me think about how I perform. Hmm, how do I do? Okay, can I do better? What about this? I mean, the more we can say what if, the more we can get into our heads and the more we can, you know, kind of interrogate our own performance in an effective way, ask better questions, the better off our kids will be. So I think that's the education we're missing is teaching kids to think versus teaching kids the facts. Or it, what we think the facts are. Again, it comes to, it comes back to uh, to semantics. You simply lay it out as not this is a weakness, but rather this is one of your areas or opportunities for yeah. growth. Yeah. Or and or here's what you can or, do about or, it. Or, or don't even think of that. Say, hey, try some new stuff to explore that further. Right. Yeah. If you didn't feel like you were very adaptable on that one, well, go try something else and see because that can be contextual as well. So so you know um so a buddy of mine, you've met him, Dan Coyle, a talent yeah. Jordan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, we uh, interviewed him together on yeah, LinkedIn. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh it's a wonderful guy. I remember asking him when I first met him uh, after he'd put out the talent code, I said, uh, maybe it was my wife. Um what's a great way to um to look for or help your kids explore talent? And he said, I don't think you should. I think you should just throw as many things in front of their windshield as possible. And, keep, and help mentor them just after. Just keep throwing things in yes. front of their windshield and just see what happens. Because sometimes they'll wipe them away. Sometimes it'll stick, whatever. Throw as much in front of their windshield as possible and let them start sorting themselves out, right? And and give them a place to, a space to be, a place to love. Great book uh, called Range. I, right? I need David Epstein, yeah, David right? Epstein, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, started to, to, to deconstruct this whole, this whole business of kids should start early and pick one thing. It's go, right? basically the, the Tiger Woods versus the Roger Federer. Right. And if they right. don't know the difference... Tiger was bred to be a golfer. Yes. Roger, Roger Federer uh, basically did almost every sport imaginable yes. within his his culture until I think he finally committed to tennis around Some, 13 or 14. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Something like that, yeah. And again, both both successful, right? But again, we're talking about two athletes. Uh, balanced? <laughs> different balanced different sort. But listen, we're not, you know, the, the, the high percent of us, of us are not going to go into professional sports, right? The high percent of us are going to, are going to go into life and have to figure it out. And how? what better position to be to figure shit out? As a generalist. As a generalist. You know, that's what you want to be. So now you have tons of perspective from which to draw. It's just, yeah. yeah. And that's why I'm biased towards hiring veterans who have a lot of experience under their belt. Yeah. Because, again, they've seen different environments. They've seen different types of uncertainty. Yeah. They're almost unflappable yeah. um, in, in a lot of ways. I want to hit the two more buckets, and then I want to get to two two questions yeah. before we uh, – so then leadership attributes. Leadership attributes, One of my yeah. favorites is, is is empathy, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, again, so what are the attributes that, that allow others to, to, to designate you a great leader? Empathy, accountability, authenticity, decisiveness, and um... – Authenticity. No, I said authenticity. What's the last Accountability? One? Accountability. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Selflessness. Sorry. Selflessness. Empathy, selflessness, authenticity, accountability, decisiveness. Um, and then team, uh, team ability. What are the attributes that allow you to be a great teammate? Again, you don't get to call yourself a great teammate. Other people yeah. call you a great teammate. Uh, those attributes are integrity. Uh, interesting about integrity. And people can read about it in the book. Integrity is subjective. To the group, right? What what <sighs> do the right thing for a Cub Scout troop is going to look different than do the yeah, right thing for an ISIS? Yeah, or group, ISIS. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I always say this is a very controversial example, but the the Cub Scout who steals five dollars from his fellow Cub Scout, 
and the ISIS person who drives the, the truck into the, the suicide truck into the target, who's living more in integrity out of those two people? ISIS right? member. It's the ISIS member. On, right? their, on, on their scale. On their scale. Yeah. On their scale. So, so you have to sort that out in your team. Integrity, uh, humility, conscientiousness, and humor are the, are the four attributes for team ability. So. You talk about empathy on a uh, dimmer switch. Yeah, and and I loved this uh, this this explanation. Um, why don't you dive into that just really quickly? Yeah. So empathy. So so the thing about empathy, and and just to just to kind of level the the playing field for everybody, um, all of us have all of these attributes. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each. Right. So if you take if you take adaptability and ten is high and one is low. You and I would probably be about a level eight, which means the environment changes around us outside of our control. We can, mm. It's fairly easy for us to go with the flow and roll mm. with it. Someone else might be a level three. Same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them to do it. No judgment there. It's just how we are, right? Empathy is the same way. And by the way, you don't have to. It's not required that you be high on all this stuff. In fact, your job, whatever you're, the, net, the niche you're in, may in fact not require you to be high. So the stand-up comic shouldn't be high on empathy because how can you find funny at a funeral if you're too empathetic, the Navy SEAL, I believe, needs to have, needs to not be too high on empathy, but have it on a dimmer switch. And what I mean by that is, we are in the position. I say the Navy SEAL. I can I can plug in any special operator, any any warfighter, yep. any yep. warrior in there. You're often in the position of providing a, a lethal force to an enemy, and then within a split second, caring for the the kids, the women and children that that just witnessed that act. Right. So you're you're shifting from deadly to caring in almost a millisecond and so and so the healthiest warriors or i shouldn't say it, the truest the true warriors you and i saw because i would i would not qualify those people who can't do this as warriors um but the true warriors are those who can have that empathy on a dimmer switch now the best leaders also do this because too much empathy as a leader can be they'll detrimental right they'll yeah. walk all over you and plus by the way if you have too much empathy oftentimes it'll it'll uh it'll be perceived you may be favoring a group, right? If I'm so caring about how this person feels, well, what about how, what about how, how this group feels, right? Um, so you have to have it on a switch. Sometimes you have to dial it up. Sometimes you have to dial it down. You have to really be very nuanced with empathy as a leader. So I think, I think the lessons we learned as warriors, having that dimmer switch, are the same lessons that translate into leadership or being effectively in charge. <laughs> However you want to say that. You tell a story about authenticity. You had one boss, which at... First glance, a lot of people would be like, that guy's grumpy, yeah. he's negative, but you're like, no, that's, he's authentically himself. Guy turned out to be very, a one of very my best good leaders. leader. Yeah. Yeah. One of my best leaders. He, you know, I first met him. He was, it was at the change of command, met him. He was grumpy. He was like asking me tough questions. I was like, oh my God, two minutes. I was like, this is going to be a rough two years. But then a couple of weeks in, found out he's like, he's like that everyone, whether it was enlisted, whether it was officer, whether it was senior leaders, whether it was whatever, he was always the same way, which, which was authentic, which means it was consistent, which meant we could trust it and we could trust him. We could trust the way he was going to be, which is a huge part of building trust, right? So we began to understand him. And oh, by the way, his tough questions were always good questions, right? So mm -hmm. it just made us better. Um, turned out to be one of my best, best, best leaders. I enjoyed working for him. So humor seems like an odd one for yeah. probably a lot of people. Yeah. I haven't read the book. Now I totally understand it. Yeah. But humor with regards to team ability, that seems more of a individual uh, trait yeah. than it does relating to being a good team member. Humor is wonderful individually, obviously. There's so many benefits to it. But what we have to understand is that laughing, involuntary response, and when we laugh, we generate... Again, neurologically and neurobiologically, we create three chemicals. Dopamine, everybody knows dopamine, often mistaken as the 
reward chemical. It's in fact a motivation chemical. It tells us this is good. Keep doing this, right? So we get dopamine, very powerful. We get endorphins. You know, endorphins mask our pain. That's runner's high, right? In the late 60s, early 70s, neurosciences were studying the brains of drug addicts. They found in human brains opiate receptors. They're like, that's really weird. Why the hell does do human brains have opiate receptors? It's because we make our own opiates. They're called endorphins, right? Mm -hmm. We are endurance creatures. Go the long haul for the hunt for the food, right? Runner's high, we get endorphins. Masks our pain. Then finally, we get oxytocin, a neurohormone, which means it affects both the body and the brain. Um, bonding, binding chemical, right? We get we get huge doses of physical contact with other human beings, our pets, physical contact there, acts of kindness and generosity. It basically tells us we're in this together. It bonds us and binds us. So when we laugh involuntarily, like sneezing, right, we get all three of those. We get burst with all three of those. And we get, this is why laughter binds people. It bonds people, Right. We, it's why it's one of the most desired qualities when looking for a partner, because if you can make someone laugh, you can make your partner laugh. It says, I'm going to, I'm going to pull you through this. I'll be there. Right. So when it comes to teaming, again, the humor attribute is not necessarily, you have to be the class clown. It's just, you have to be able to laugh with the class. I mean, but we have to honor those class clowns, those people. We had them in our, in our platoons and troops. There was always those one or two people that were always the guys who made the stupid, funny hilarious jokes at the wrong time and we would all be crying because we'd laughing so hard right we need that shit we really do it's one of the things i miss most about the teams is the laughing because the humor i think you i think we learn it in buds i really do oh the, it is powerful in in buds is one thing when you're going through hell when people are putting you through yeah. physical let's call it punishment for what it else yeah um but to be in a firefight surrounded outgunned and one of your guys makes a joke to where everyone's laughing. And it's almost like this reset. Yes. And the team looks at each other and says, hey, we're in a bad situation. Yeah, yeah. But we're good. Are we good here? Yeah. All right. And you bring the yeah, fight. So there's, a, there's also a neurobiological reason for that too. Um, because the courage. So, so I talk about courage. Courage. When we are afraid, we're... Is that often, your Connecticut coming out right there? What? Courage? Courage. Courage. Well, I don't know. It's your Eastern Maybe accent. I didn't yeah, think yeah. I had one, but yeah. Okay, sure. Sure. <laughs> the the wolf is on the wolf. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. It's a, but it's not. It's not still. It's not as north as Boston. No, it's not. Yeah, no, okay. it's not. Um, so courage. We you know uh, when we get when we get afraid. Okay. We are we are our brains. Our autonomic arousal rises. Okay. And we are starting to our 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 frontal lobe is starting to go offline. Our limbic system starting to kick up. Our amygdala is kicking in. We are offered two choices: flight or fight. Right. People think freeze is a choice. It's actually not. It's an oscillation between the two. Okay. Bottom line is we can choose either one, okay? Before we're in autonomic, full autonomic uh, overload, and then our body chooses without yes. us knowing, right? But yeah. but until that point, we can choose either one. When we choose to fight, i.e. step into our fear, okay, our body rewards us with dopamine. It's a switch. It's a specific courage switch in our brain, and we get a dopamine reward for it. So when we step into our fear, we get a dopamine reward, right? This is why when we do something that scares us, we feel good, okay? Think about this for a second, okay? When you're in a sticky situation and you're fearful and shit's going down, right? Someone cracks a joke and you genuinely laugh, genuinely laugh, you suddenly got dopamine, right? It's a hack into courage. And anybody who might have, they might be listening, who's been afraid of something, they've been truly kind of genuinely fearful, right? And they've had the opportunity to, to laugh in a genuine way at something, will know their fear went away for a second, right? Because we just got a dopamine hit, right? So, so this type of behavior, this humor, pulls people through gunfight uh, one of our mutual friends told me that they were in a helicopter on the way back from a mission and they were all flying back and the helicopter began to crash began to go down and they're all sitting in there like what the hell's going on right and one of the dudes looks at all the other dudes and says well i guess we're not gonna have to clean our weapons tonight 
And they all burst out laughing. I mean, this is what happens. And suddenly you're okay. Now I can solve problems. I can do whatever, but at least I feel good, you know? And so, I mean, who wouldn't want to die laughing? I mean, if you're going to die somehow, you might as well die laughing, right? So, but that's what it does. It, it, it pulls us through. It's why it's such a team ability attribute. Powerful. Yeah. Well, it, here's, here's what I'm going to do for the listeners. Cause I know this one is going to pull people in this what they, they want more and they should. Because if you understand these more, you can under or you can do a self assessment. Yeah. And one, you you have an assessment yeah. on your website, which is yeah the the one that right now it's uh, grit mental acuity and drive. We're starting to upgrade it, but you can still get there. You can still go there and do the three for free, and get some scores on grit mental acuity and drive. Um, we're gonna have leadership and team ability out soon. That'll be a three sixty assessment, but you can get a little bit of a of a clue on where do you fall. But the website the website is the attributes the attributes dot com. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. and when you go to the top menu bar, it says take uh, the attributes assessment. Yeah, it's all and there, so and uh, you can get all. The how long does it take people to? I mean, uh, if you want to take the grit one, each one is going to take you probably about 10 minutes. So, yeah, 10, so. 40 minutes and all? Yeah, okay. if that. 40 minutes would be long, yeah. So one of, the, one of the biggest missed opportunities is for everyone, and, and I didn't learn this until only a few years ago, is actually stopping to take a self-assessment. Because mm-hmm. I guarantee, are you the same person you were last month? Right. No, Right. you're not. I was not the same person I was when, when I was leading a troop. Definitely not the same person I was when I was in the MBA program. And now after four years in business and, yeah. and having a couple of failures under my belt, I'm not the same person. So taking a personal assessment is one of the most powerful things and you should be doing it. If you can't do it on a monthly basis, do it on a quarterly, yeah. if not uh biannually basis. Yeah, yeah. Totally agree. Um, so I'm going to have you back to talk about each of the buckets. And for those, I only want to do like 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And again, still guys, even if he explains each of the buckets for 30 minutes, you're not getting the book. Go buy the book. Mine is covered in highlighter in tabs and i've actually taken a lot of what you talked about and put it into my own sort of speeches my keynotes yeah, working yeah, with yeah. companies as part of the leadership uh and then talent selection as well uh we do end this podcast with a few questions and you know this so uh we'll jump right in and looking for a little vulnerability here too is yeah what is the hardest decision or biggest regret you've ever uh had to make or have to date oh um Gosh, hardest decision, biggest regret. I, I I stay away from the word regret because I always feel like, you know. It's a learning lesson. Yeah, I feel like my life wouldn't be where it is had I not made the mistakes I did, right? So I don't regret much. Um, uh, hardest decisions would probably be, especially from a work, would be that I, I, I turned around on three, three operations. Out of the hundreds I've done, we, tur- we had to turn around. Um, and we turned around because I had to, because I made the decision to because I was I was not feeling like everything was lining up in place and there wasn't anything catastrophic that was happening in the moment but but I just felt like things weren't lining up in a way that were going to was going to induce success I kind of had that old you know that 2020 after action where guys look at like well they saw this and they saw this and they saw all these little things and so yes. that's always hard especially at the level you and I play and I remember the very first mission I went on at the command you and I were at very specialized elite command takes years to get there. It was the very first mission I was on in Afghanistan as a troop commander. And I turned around on it and it was the, 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 this, the guy in charge was a ranger back at the, at the, at the jock. And I remember calling him on the radio and said, Hey, we're, we're, we're coming RTB. back. We, yeah. We're RTB. And there was kind of like pause, like what really? I was like, yeah, we are hardest thing I had to make. Some of the guys were pissed, you know, uh, every time I did it, some of the guys were pissed. Luckily I had leadership that, you know, te- both in the troop chief and the team leaders are like, they, no, they, they thought it was the right thing too as, as well, but it's always hard. It's always hard to do that. Um, and, uh, and you don't necessarily get, uh, a, 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 a recognition that you did the right thing because you're, you're, you're 
doing it because you're preventing something from happening, right? So, so those are always hard decisions uh, to to do. Yeah. I, I rarely tell war stories, but um, you know, funny enough, we released Sean White came on, yeah, and he talked about this, yeah. And again, interviewing Sean White, you just think this guy is is fearless, has yeah, no yeah. risk, yeah, uh, assessment. And I was absolutely absolutely wrong. Yeah. How calculated he was, and he said. Of course, the public doesn't know this, but there were so many days and so many competitions where I didn't go for the McTwist yeah, yeah. 720, where I went for a lesser trick because things did not feel like it wasn't lining up. up. Yeah. I remember my commanding officer, who's one of my greatest mentors, we were going to a target and probably two kilometers from the target, uh, five enemy combatants literally walked into the patrol and were reported as eagles returning to the the, the patrol by, by, by ISR. And I'm like, wait, wait. Eagles never left the patrol, yeah. and then all of a sudden, a firefight with the front element breaks out. Hand, hand grenades were thrown. Wow. Um, our guys were okay. They eliminated the enemy. But literally almost uh, two minutes after it happened, because we were going to mop up and collect everything there, I said, hey, we're, we're going to RTB after uh, we clean up here. And I didn't even call to, to find out what was going on the objective. Right, right. And, uh, of course, my, my commanding officer, he said, hey, why did you make that call? You could have continued on. And I said, uh, it just... It, it didn't feel right after right. that. My guys guys were like very focused yeah. on what had just happened because that was a, a very uh, – it was a close contact yeah. situation. Yeah. And uh, he's like, okay. He's like, well, just you could have talked to ISR and see if there was any movement on the target. And I said, yeah, you're actually right. I could have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't do that. He's like, well, the, the people left the target. Uh, but he, he tried to, to, to get me to, to think a little more critically yeah, and use yeah. it. But I just had that feeling. I'm like, yeah, yeah no, we're done here. Yeah, yeah. We're done here. Tough decisions. Um, and you're always, there's, there's always a fear of people are going to, they're always going to talk. Oh, you, I mean, you, yeah. If you're, if you were, if you're a true leader, that's going to, I mean, you have to accept that. You're not you got to get comfortable I mean, with that. Yeah. You yeah. Have to, they're going to be people who don't like what you're doing. Our kids, our kids aren't always going to love us. Right? We're just, it's not going to happen that way. We're going to have to take decisions that they don't agree with. Same thing with leadership. There is you know, well, all, all my guys are upset at me because all your guys are upset at you does not mean you're necessarily wrong. No, it means that the mob mentality could have started. That's right. And that in, if you made the right decision for your people and yeah. not, not best decision, if you made your right, the right decision for your people in the yeah. organization, then you should feel 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, and so similar, what, what are those three key tenants? Those, those, those non-negotiables yeah, for you that have led to the majority of your success, those things that you've you've held dear and followed, those principles or traits. Yeah, um, I always have. I've always put my identity as husband and father as number one. That's always number one, for me. <laughs> um, and that ha- that keeps me grounded, right? Because because whatever endeavor I do, I know I have that to fall back on, and I've always focused on that, right? So so I think identity has a lot to do with it. And if you can ground yourself in an identity that's real. And meaningful. This is how you can transfer through different identities that you're just exploring, and you'll be fine because you always have this grounding one. So that's one. Um, the other one, I think I only have two because the other one is massively important. I think I think the secret to success is delayed gratification <laughs> uh, and the ability to not get something and to be able to be patient and the ability to work hard and the ability to say, hey, I don't need this right now. I'm going to wait for it. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to make small goals in the meantime, but I, I'm okay. I'm okay. And there's no, there's no jealousy. There's no wanting. There's, you're just, you're there. You're just chunking it out. You're walking the walk and the walk. And the people I've seen who can't delay gratification 
which is 90 percent which of is 90 America. well social media doesn't help right i mean it, you know because it's all dopamine right so but this is this is so i guess that the, the caveat to that is can you there's a, there's a science behind creating dopamine reward in the struggle right so you begin to enjoy the struggle in a way that you get rewarded for it but ultimately it's delayed gratification if you can delay gratification you will be successful. Which, in, in to our conversation of skills and attributes, I I would very much view delayed gratification as a yeah. I'd have to you know I've, I've thought the about marsh, the marshmallow experiment where they yes. tested the kids. Yeah, there's, those there's kids that yeah. That so had I think it's going to be a combination of attributes. I haven't put together what that combination is. Mm -hmm. uh, part one of that might it's be, a bucket. It's a bucket, and I think patience might be in there, but I'm not sure yet. So I'd have to I have to do some. Oh, it's got to be a, it, it's got to be there. Right? But there are some real impatient people who are also successful. So I'd have to really think about what the how those play off of each other. I, yeah. I don't know. It's that's a, that's a that's another conversation. It's a, okay. Yeah. So uh, always identified as a husband and a father. Yeah. That's your grounding. Yeah. And then two delayed de de yeah. delayed gratification. Yeah. That's that's a big one. When all is said and done. And hopefully that's forty years, fifty years from now. Yeah. Uh, for you, um, what's the? And we talk about legacy. You call it the irony of leadership. I call it the yeah. legacy of leadership. Yeah. What do you What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want Rich Divinity to be known for? Um. Well, bottom line, uh, great husband, husband and father. And father. Yeah. I mean, if that's if that's all it says on my tombstone, I'm fine. Um. But uh. But in addition to that, I would love for people to have been helped and been able to explore their own potential through maybe some of the distinctions I've given them or helped them or not even given them, help them recognize. Um, I think breaking down performance success and, and success to very elemental human, human things can give people the tools to succeed. And, um, and I think having gone around the world, you see people all the time and you run into people, especially kids, uh, and you, I've always wondered when I see some of these kids out there who are just beautiful children who are just doing their thing and really smart and really, and I say to myself, I wonder if they have the resources, if they'll be able to achieve their potential. And, um, and if I can, if I can, if I can give a little bit of peace to that to, to other people so that they can maybe explore their potential as well. That's that's a cool that's a cool legacy. I think you're you're well on your way to to doing that, and the uh, the impact you're going to have is uh, is massive. I know your book impact me. It made me well. It helped me to assess yeah. the last twenty years of my life, and, and for that I'm thankful. Rich, you are coming back on one year contributor for the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior. Yeah. You've written some great articles. You're about to release some more. Yep. Uh, you've got some in the bucket. We will have you back on for all those. Again, you can pick up the book, The Attributes, at Amazon. Um, 30,000 copies at this point that's huge yeah, and it's picking like up steam, picking up steam. Um, which is many, much, <laughs> a lot more copies than I've sold with the, uh, the talent war, but, uh, also a good book, by the way, uh, yeah. go, go pick yeah. up the attributes, go check out the, uh, the website and for the companies I want to bring rich in, uh, again, just go to the attributes.com, uh, go to the, uh, the contact us and you can, uh, contact them that way. Rich, thanks for coming in, man. Thanks brother. Great All to right. be here. Guys, we'll be back with another episode of the men's journal, everyday warrior, uh, podcast until next time. Be good. Right, better.